Muhammad was from Syria, and he was a Muslim extremist even from his teen years, which meant, amongst other things, that he was committed to warring against those that he and his terrorist organization thought were God's enemies. And in so doing, he thought that actually by committing to these things that he would find God. But after seeing the war, massacres, Muslims killing other Muslims, he knew something was wrong. Eventually, though still a devout Muslim, he and his wife decided to join the other two and a half million Syrians uh, in exile in Turkey. That was the number that was in exile in Turkey in particular. The, The number of Syrians who were in exile is much larger than that in general. But even though he still very much identified himself as a Muslim, he was, you know, he was uh, committed to praying five times a day, so much so that his neighbors around him would say, you know, so when are you going to become a prophet? But it was, it, during this time, while he was in Turkey, God intervened. At some point, Muhammad's wife got seriously ill, and Muhammad reached out to his cousin Ahmed for support. And Ahmed was the one who helped indoctrinate him in the jihadist mentality to begin with. But in this phone call, Ahmed relayed that he had a different Lord. And as Muhammad talked to Ahmed about his sick wife, Ahmed volunteered and he prayed to his Savior, Jesus Christ, for her healing. And he even had Muhammad take the phone and put it up to his wife's ear so that he could sing praises to Jesus with her. Frankly, Muhammad was repulsed. But by God's grace, his wife got better. Uh, It was his wife's dream, though, that seemed to really stir something in Muhammad's heart. She dreamt of a biblical figure whose God parted the Red Seas. Of course, his figure would be Moses. So, okay, with everything that's going on with his cousin, a former jihadi turned Christian, and his prayers, with his wife's recovery after his cousin had prayed to Christ, with all of his cousins singing and him hearing all of this, and then now with his wife's dream of a story of Moses and the all-powerful Lord, he knew it was time to truly investigate this Christianity that he himself grew up hating. And sensing his own need for God, he asked his cousin to find a Christian pastor in Istanbul. His cousin was in Canada, and he asked him, hey, can you find a Christian pastor in Istanbul so that I can talk to him about this Christianity? And by God's grace there... They get connected, and he found Jesus Christ. He was saved. Muhammad turned to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This New York Times article even goes on to report that this jihadi turned Jesus is now the glue, so to speak, the personal relational glue of a little small group of Christians in Istanbul, Christians of Syrian background and other unreached people's groups, people who have never heard of the gospel before. They go to Istanbul To hear now the gospel preached by this former jihadist turned to Jesus. Does that that story excite you? Does that make you thank God for the work that he is doing all over the world? And do you yourself long to see other people come to know Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior? It certainly did for the Apostle Paul. In fact, we get to read of his response in the book of Romans... We get over here of his response to hearing that people in the world were coming to the one true and living Savior, that is Jesus Christ. And we read of this in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. Go ahead and turn there now. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 1, verses 8 to 15. Page 939 if you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you. As you turn there, let me give you a bit of background. We began the book of Romans last week, and we learned that Paul is a missionary, right? He's introducing himself to these Roman Christians whom he had never met, at least the majority of them. He had never been to Rome. So he introduces himself as a missionary, and he, was, he also says that he was charged to bring about or bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, which means non-Jewish folks. So we were introduced last week to the missionary and the missionary's gospel. Today, we see the missionary's desires The missionary's desires. And as we look to Paul's desires, keep in mind that we here have a pattern for all Christians. 
in his desires here, we have a pattern for all Christians. We have here what we are to grow up into. So if you call yourself a Christian here, we have the pattern that we all are to walk insofar as he walks after Jesus Christ. I pray that as we read of Paul's hearts, that we ourselves would grow to be more like him. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. We're still here in the introduction of the letter, basically. This is what he goes on to say. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Our our outline today, if you're taking notes, mature gospel-driven Christians... Number one, delight in the gospel's advance. I'll repeat that again. Mature gospel-driven Christians. Number one, delight in the gospel's advance. Number two, desire gospel encouragement. And number three, dream of gospel harvest. So number one again, delight in the gospel's advance. Number two, desire gospel encouragement. And number three, dream of gospel harvest. Dream of a gospel harvest. Let's dive into point number one. Mature gospel-driven Christians delight in the gospel's advance. That's right there in verse number 8. I'll repeat that again. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Like all other ancient letters, this letter contains an opening, which is a thanksgiving and a prayer. Obviously, Paul is a Christian. He's co-opting this this normal, regular formula, but he's Christianizing it, right? He's a believer. He believes that there's only one God worthy of all praise and honor and thanks, and so he thanks that God. He thanks that God right there. But why does Paul delight in thanking God? Well, it says plain right there, because the reason is your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Here he's talking about the gospel's advance, the gospel's advance, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Now, Paul had never been, once again, to the church in Rome But it's obvious that he had heard about the Romans coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the news of their faith, the news of their faith spread around the whole world, Paul says. So we don't need to take this literally as in like, you know, this news spread around the whole entire world. Don't take it literally. He's just saying that the people in the areas where he was ministering in told him that there were Christians in Rome. Right. Remember, he's going around all over in all over the Mediterranean, if you want to think about it geographically, <clears throat> which is like an oval. So he's going around from Jerusalem all the way to this area, which was called Illyricum. And then now he wants to go further on to Spain. He wants to go further west to Spain. He says, look, everywhere I've gone, your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole entire world. What a delight this must have been for Paul, especially as his role as an apostle. Right? He's not just a missionary. He is, he is an apostle. As we mentioned last week, the apostles were given a unique charge to lay the foundation of the church. There is only one church. The church age actually began at a particular point in history, which is Acts chapter 2, where Jesus pours out his spirit. So then the church age begins. And, and there Christ charges the apostles, Paul was one of them, <clears throat> to lay the foundation of the church. So they were known as the capital A apostles, for example. Not just anyone could or ought to call themselves an apostle. What they said in Christ, what the apostles said in Christ was binding on all churches, for example. Some of the apostles went on to write scripture. And so what the apostles said was binding upon the churches, right? We understand this today. I mean, people today, they might call themselves an apostle, which me personally, I don't think the office exists today. Uh, I also think it can be unwise to call oneself an apostle now, I have a friend who, called, who <clears throat> at least at a certain point in his ministry, used to call himself an apostle. Uh, but he still distanced himself from the scriptural apostles. He said, no, we're not receiving divine revelation that's binding on all churches. We call ourselves apostles as in we're taking care of many different churches. Now, again, I don't think that the office is in scripture today. I see elders and deacons. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I understand what he's talking about. 
uh, and that's it is what it is. But he himself would distance himself from capital A apostles. <clears throat> but anyways, what a delight it must have been for Paul to hear of people becoming followers of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews. And re- remember there in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, right? Who is Paul? He is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then what is his mission? Later on he says, to bring about, quote, the obedience of faith among all nations, the Gentiles, for the sake of Christ's name. And this gospel advance among all nations was unfolding right before his very eyes. Right before his very eyes, God was unfolding his plan of salvation in areas that he himself had been to and in areas that he had not been to. Now, the reason why I say unfolding was because this was something that God had promised to do in ages past that God now was moving to fulfill. So earlier in chapter 1, right, we, we looked at how God had promised this gospel in the Old Testament. So Paul's delight here is indeed, you know, praise God that people are coming to know their creator, right? They're coming to trust in Jesus Christ. They're coming to believe in the gospel. But also his delight is in the fact that God himself promised this would happen. This is exciting news. People are coming to the faith. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself to be not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're exploring Christianity and the church. You know, you might wonder, like, man, why are these people so caught up on winning more converts, establishing more churches, right? These people are strange. And I myself have heard that, too. But, you know, for Christians, it's never just about winning converts. And besides that, you know, we believe that the Bible teaches that only God converts people to himself. But the reason we delight when people come to know Jesus Christ, because in Christ, God has flung wide the gates of salvation, And God is on the move now to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so if you read the book of Acts, they go around saying, today is the day of salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ. And we're going to take that message all the way to the ends of the earth. And that, in fact, is good news. That is exactly what the word gospel means. It means good news. And Paul was all about the good news. And our passage says there that that, uh, this is, let let me find the verse there here. Verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Right? God is his witness. He stands before God as an apostle. And he said, look, with my, with my spirit. That basically means with my whole entire being, I'm giving myself to the good news of Jesus Christ. If you want a gospel summary, okay, if you're visiting with us and you want a gospel summary, you can think of, think of these four hooks, right? You have God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. This is something that even the eight-year-old can memorize, right? The seven-year-old can memorize. The five-year-old can memorize. God, man, Christ response. A gospel summary. God created all things. He created us to be in a a relationship with him, a perfect relationship where there was no sin. We were supposed to have fellowship with God. But of course, we know the story of man. As you look around, you know that man, you know, this is not a perfect relationship with one another, nor God. Turn on the news. You can look at your own self. You know, why is it that you lie to one another? Maybe you want to be mean to your siblings. We know that man rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They wanted to live underneath their own authority. And so doing, they rejected God's authority. Maybe you, if you're a child, maybe you're a five-year-old, seven-year-old, you know what this rebellion is like because you rebel against your parents. Well, then you know what it's like to rebel against God. The very bad news is that man earned for themselves just judgment the Bible says even judgment in hell. If there, is, if there is only one king and you want to set up your own kingdom, well, you know, there's a price to pay. We know that very, you know, as we look around the world. The wonderful, the good news, the wonderful good news, the wonderful gospel is that God initiated a salvation plan to those that were sinning against him, to his very rebels. And so he sent Jesus to live the life that you should have, to die the death that you should have, that you yourself earned for yourself. And Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved by dying on the cross. He bore our sin. He bore the wrath. Why does he do that? So that we could be free, so that we wouldn't have to pay the punishment that we rightly deserved. And so we see God's love, his justice, his mercy, all in Christ on the cross. Three days later, he got up from the dead, showing all that payment was paid. Friends, this is the gospel. And of course, it ends on a response 
as you see the apostles, they're going around saying, repent of your sins and believe, right? So that call is for everybody. And that's for you too. Repent of your sins and believe. God, man, Christ responds. And you will know forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into his family, life secure, and eternal life to come. And like last week, this good news was spoken of from ages past. Did you guys know that the word gospel or good news is used in the Old Testament? Did you guys know that? Isaiah 52. Go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 52. what's really fascinating is at the end of 52 and 53 he's going to talk about jesus it's a prophecy of christ you look there he's going to get there 53 3 or 53 5 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed speaking all about jesus but prior to that look at how this whole section begins he says there, how, look in 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news. What does he do? He who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Verses, verse 9, you look there, this is a time of gathering uh, to sing to sing great praise why is that verse 10 the lord has bared his holy arm before all of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our god you see that all that connected with the gospel with the good news and then you turn over to isaiah 61 Isaiah chapter 61. It says there, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Okay, you should be wondering who is this me. Because the Lord has anointed me. What does he do? To bring good news. Once again, there you go. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So you see everything that's connected once again to this aspect of good news preached. You hear this idea of renovation. You hear this idea of freedom. You hear this idea of riches in Jesus Christ. And you know what's awesome is that in in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is worshiping in the synagogue, he opens up the, the scrolls and says that passage, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in me good news to the poor and i am proclaiming freedom for the captives to all who stand in sin enslaved to it and that's 700 years after this old testament fulfillment so given these old testament prophecies speak of this wide-scale movement of salvation to the ends of the earth we see very clearly where the great commission stands doesn't it salvation plan fulfilled in jesus christ jesus christ about to go up back into heaven and he gives the, the, the church the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples. Seeing that all people from all nations hear that sin and death no longer reign, but that the true king is on the throne. And you rebels can know fellowship with the true king. This would have been a shock to the Romans. Okay, We're going to put ourselves in the Romans' shoes here. This would have been an absolute shock to the Romans. <clears throat> the Romans, you know, they already had a king to worship, didn't they? The emperor. And guess what? The emperor's birth was actually labeled as good news. That is gospel. When Caesar Augustus was born, commentators point out, his birth was announced as gospel. Right? The history books show this. And so for the Romans who came to Christ, they then come to realize that there was and is only one prince of peace. Only one Wonderful counselor on whose shoulders the entire universe would sit. Jesus Christ, the Lord and Messiah. Paul knew here that God was on the move, claiming people for himself, unfolding his plan of salvation and advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, as we move towards application here, thinking about we as Christians desiring gospel advance, 
One of the things that's obvious is that Paul's delight matches his calling. Paul's delight matches his calling. Uh, he was called by Christ once again to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, right? So he hears that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And what does he do? He delights. So his delight matches his calling. So Christian, let me ask you, does your delight match your calling? We do not all have the same. We do not have the same call that Paul had. Again, he was an apostle. We are not apostles today. Uh, there are no capital A apostles today called to lay the foundation of the church age. But while we are not apostles, we too have our marching orders, don't we? In the Great Commission, go therefore into the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And He says, "Behold, I am with you to the end of the age." That's how we know it's not just for the apostles, right? Christ promises his presence to the end of the age. So that commission is for the whole entire church. Regarding calling, the church has a calling to live for Christ and make disciples in the gospel. Live for Christ and make disciples in the gospel. So if that is our calling, what then do you, Christian, delight in? What sparks the fuel of your delighting here on earth? Is it the fulfillment of God's unfolding plan? Or is it the fulfillment of your own plans? Maybe rejoicing in a new job. It's not necessarily bad, but you know, here we're just checking ourselves. It's like a diagnostic question. Maybe it's the fulfillment of your own plans, like getting a new job, getting a new raise. Maybe your family plans are fulfilled, right? Maybe you know what it's like to plot and scheme and strategize for hours and delight when your plans come to fruition. But friends, what about God's plan? Does the salvation of sinners by the grace of God bring you delight? This, once again, is a diagnostic question worth asking yourself, and it'll help you see if you really have, I think, embraced Christ's call on your life. If our divine call is, in fact, to make disciples for Him and to glorify His name, and we have embraced that call joyfully, then it stands to reason that we would love hearing about how God is accomplishing His plans, not only through us, but through His worldwide church. Like, for example, Tabitha in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Right, if we're like, eh, yeah, that, that's okay. And we aren't loving the fact that God Himself is on the move, and Tabitha herself was embracing Jesus Christ and laboring so faithfully for seven years, and now has gone to be with the Lord. Right, you got to wonder... What exactly is your life's goal in terms of delight? What, in, what, 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 what fuels your worship, your praise, your delight? Is it your plans or is it God's unfolding plan of salvation? Friends, we don't have to look overseas to see how God is bringing about his plan to save sinners. We can just look around right here, right next door to us, person sitting in your pew. We all come from different backgrounds, different types of cultures, different countries. And we have been bound by the blood of Jesus. All of us right here, if you're a Christian, we have been bound by the blood of Christ. And if you are a Gentile, it means God is unfolding his plan of salvation right here, right now. Friends, if you want to spur on your delight in the gospel's advance <clears throat> among all nations, among all peoples, among all people from different languages, you know, let me know because I can point you to people who have become Christians recently. And they'll tell you how they came across the gospel of Jesus Christ recently and have come to embrace their Lord and Savior, to live for the fame of His great name. <clears throat> so one way to cultivate your delight, basic practical application here, and I feel like I mention this frequently, but let's go ahead and talk about your testimonies. If you are looking to see how the gospel is advancing in your own congregation, you know, ask other people their testimonies. But, but let me go a step further here, and uh, I don't think I've quite said this, but as you talk about each other's testimonies, I want you guys to be detectives of grace. Be detectives of grace. So look for how God was moving by His grace in that person's life to bring that person to know Him. And then go on and let them see, or let them know where you see God's grace in their stories. I think it is so fun to hear about how other people come to know Jesus Christ, because I believe that God is all sovereign in salvation. I believe, just as it says in the book of Acts, that God determines the places and boundaries in which we are to live so that we might seek after Him, and then how His grace moves in the midst of it to bring His people to know Him. So friends, be a grace detective and then rejoice. 
Because in their coming to know Jesus, God is unfolding His plan of salvation to bring all peoples, different tribes and nations and languages to know Him. I'm going to share testimonies very briefly, but I'm going to share testimonies in our members meeting. Right, we got three people joining the church, and they all have three different unique testimonies. And friends, that's a joy. If you want to know one example, I didn't tell Lydia, but I pray that Lydia is not uh, angry at me here. <clears throat> you know, in, in, a, in a previous members meeting, we talked about how people are coming to Jesus. And when I was doing Lydia's membership interview, uh, you know, if you want to join the church, the pastor sit down with you to talk about your testimony. So I get the pleasure of hearing Lydia's testimony. And she was telling me about how <clears throat> she had this one friend uh, who would reach out to her and tell her about Jesus. And this friend invited her over to her house and she was, this friend wasn't even intending to give her this, this piece of literature, but on the dining, uh, on this uh, coffee table was this tract that explained the gospel. And so her friend was off doing something, and so as far as I remember the story, Lydia picks up the, the tract and opens it and begins to read it, and she says, look, behold, even though your sins are red like scarlet, you can be washed clean, white like wool. And she sees that and she, she just has a strong desire to believe in Jesus Christ from that time on. I mean, don't, don't you see how by God's grace, uh, you know, as he determines the places and boundaries in which we are to live, he has Lydia here at this particular place. He has Lydia friends with this particular person. And this particular person asks her to come over to her house. And then on this table, behold, is this tract where the gospel is made evident and clear to her. And then she believes on Jesus Christ uh, soon thereafter. Friends, if you are a grace detective, you will be amazed to see God's grace working in people's life, in Lydia's life, in all of our lives, in Tabitha's life, even in Burma. That's point number one. Mature gospel-driven Christians delight in the gospel's advance. Delight in the gospel's advance. Main application there, we've got to check ourselves in what we ourselves delight in. Second point here, mature mature gospel-driven Christians... Desire gospel encouragement. Desire gospel encouragement. Desire gospel encouragement. This this is the thrust of verses 9 to 12. I'll go ahead and read that again. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What does Paul pray that God would make happen there? He's praying unceasingly, right? He unceasingly mentions this doesn't mean that this is all he does in his day. It just means that he's praying regularly, frequently. And he's requesting. How does he pray? He requests that by the will of God, I will succeed in my coming to you. Right? He wants to go and see them face to face there. But why does he want it? Verses 11 and 12. Why does he want it? And here Paul's logic is just so tight. It's just so plain. Right? What he wants to accomplish to impart some spiritual gift to you. What is the purpose? It is that you may be established or strengthened. And then he further explains what this looks like. That we may be mutually encouraged. It's just so obvious, right? What does he want to do? Impart some spiritual gift to you. Why? That you may be established, strengthened. What does that mean? That we may be mutually encouraged. Looking at this encouragement, Paul knows that it will come through a spiritual gift. We want to understand what this is, right? He wants to go give them this gift. What is it? Uh, It's a legitimate question to ask about, you know, what is he talking about? Uh, We have some options here. One option is that Paul wants to impart to them a specific ministerial gift So think here, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, you know, like in Corinthians uh, or even in Romans chapter 12. This is a ministerial gift, some people say, used to strengthen the church. Um, But just so you guys know, those gifts as described in those passages, like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, um, are not actually called, quote, spiritual gifts. They're not actually called, quote, spiritual gifts. They might be called gifts of the Spirit and things like that, but not spiritual gifts. Those those are the words that he uses specifically right here. In fact, nowhere else does Paul use this phrase spiritual gift like he does here. And and another another interesting thing is that he doesn't seem clear, or it doesn't seem clear that he has in mind those specific gifts. It doesn't seem clear that he has in mind those specific gifts. It says there he wants to impart some spiritual gift some general spiritual gift 
So, given that Paul refers to some spiritual gift, I'm inclined to think with others that Paul wants to bestow upon them some sort of spiritual insight into gospel truths. Some sort of spiritual insight into gospel truths in relation to what he's written here in the book of Romans, right? He just wants to go and see them. He's going to explain to them what he wants to talk about. And then he wants to go and go and talk to them about these spiritual insights in relation to the gospel truths. For example, what is a spiritual insight? You can think of it as, right, the condition of sinful man. You can think about it as reconciliation with God. You can think about how the gospel is for all peoples, uh, Gentiles included. All of these truths fall under the spiritual gift of what he wants, of what I call spiritual insight into gospel truths. But we see where he is going. No matter what you conclude here about the spiritual gift that he wants to impart, we see where he's going with this spiritual insight. It is for the purpose of establishing or strengthening the church in the faith. A mature Christian heart here aims not just at teaching the truth, but securing hearts in the truth. Mature Christian, a mature Christian's heart not only desires to teach the truth, but to secure hearts in that truth. That's what he wants. And he knows that it's going to benefit him as well. Look there in verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So both the discipled and the discipler are to be encouraged. And I experienced that recently. And maybe if you've ever taken time to really invest in somebody's life, you too have experienced this. Um, I meet up somewhat regularly with a, uh, a younger Christian, um, a younger brother in the faith, and I hope to encourage him. And every time I come away meeting from him, he encourages me too. So I find this brother to be teachable. I find this brother to be eager to learn. I find this brother to be so obvious in his growth here. So there's a mutual encouragement of the gospel. So I can say something like, hey, brother, have you ever thought about talking about that particular sin that we just shared with this person? And he was like, oh, you know what? I've never really shared that before. I said, great. I want you to go and talk to him. Let him know how he can be praying for you. And then the next time we hang out, he's coming back and saying, you know what? I did. And it was a good conversation. So I'm spiritually built up as he is growing in the faith. And then I hear, you know, one example, uh, uh, you know, I'll say, hey, go and think about doing this. Think about sharing this particular truth with this particular person. And he'll go away and do it. And he'll come back and tell me that he did. And so I get encouraged by that. This is the mutual edification here that Paul wants to delight in, that he seeks. The gospel binds people together. And it also allows people uh, to encourage one another. Because we are bound together, we embrace the commands of Jesus Christ and therefore want to strengthen the church just as Jesus Christ commands. So seeing Paul's desire for gospel encouragement here, we have to examine ourselves as well. We've got to examine our own intentions as we follow Jesus Christ. You know, Paul is writing as an apostle and he wants to meet them face to face for mutual encouragement, right? He wants to go and see them and he wants to do that as an apostle. But for us as a church, but for us as a church, did you guys know that God commands that we not forsake regularly assembling with one another? He says that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. He wants us to not forsake regularly assembling together as other people have already. That's what Hebrews 10, 24 says. And he wants us to do that for mutual encouragement. It's like by divine plan, he says, look, I want you to obey this command. I have, pl- I have planned it so that you guys are supposed to get together to worship and be encouraged. Now, if you are a Christian, I trust that you came here today to worship and obey Jesus Christ, to, to give God all of the glory. But let me ask you a question. Do, does your desire to worship and obey Jesus Christ, does that include... Does that include a desire and commitment to see each other's hearts secure in the gospel? Like even right here, right now, does does your desire to worship Jesus Christ and obey Jesus Christ include a desire and commitment to see each other's hearts secure in the truth of Jesus Christ? This is Paul's desire here. Gospel encouragement, mutual encouragement. He is concerned about them. And he knows, too, that as they get together, that they'll be mutually encouraged. You know, a lot of people approach church as something the individual does. It's something that the individual does, like it's only a privatized personal experience. They go on to hear God's word, right? I go to church to hear God's word. I go to church to sing God's praises. But I have no regard for God's people. But if we attended church with Paul's intentions... 
mutual encouragement, right? With the very intentions of Jesus Christ who gave his life for others so they would be secure in the gospel. Then I think that we would all look like we would be, we would all be providers, right? I talk about this in membership class. That today, unfortunately, many people approach church like with a consumer mentality. You know, it's like, yeah, I could go to that grocery store, this grocery store. But friends, we need to set that down as we follow Jesus Christ's model and become a provider, not a consumer. And so therefore, I think we're going to have on our minds so much more this idea of, uh, what can I do to provide for other people so that there would be this mutual encouragement where the worship and obedience to God includes actually a great regard for God's people. If you're wondering, uh, you know, how we can grow in this uh, mutual encouragement that, that we would want these very things, that we would desire mutual encouragement, I think a great example of what this might look like is found in uh, the church covenant, which is there in your bulletin. If you have your bulletin, you can pull out the little insert there. You come across the church covenant. Now, if you're wondering how exactly we as a church use this, we reaffirm our church covenant to one another before we take the Lord's Supper. So we do that once a month at the very least. And then we also use it, we reaffirm our church covenant with one another at members' meetings. So at members' meetings, before we take care of, you know, the, the, the business of the church, bringing people into the church, etc. And here in the, in the church covenant, we have a reminder of what binds us together by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And then we also have a reminder of what we are bound to. So not only do we have a reminder of what we're bound by, but we have a reminder of what we're bound to, that is, the Lord's love. The Lord's commands. So, right, so think about the church covenant in this way. Every family has a certain way of doing things, right? Whether said or unsaid. Well, friends, this here, this here is the expectation, the certain way that Christ's family does things. And friends, this is not particular to First Baptist Church. This is not an inspired document. It just summarizes God's inspired word in terms of what the, how the church is to interact with one another. This is not particular to First Baptist Church. This should be particular every church of Jesus Christ, whether they have this covenant or not. So if you want to look here, right, it says we will do all of these things together. You look at the one, two, three, four, fifth paragraph, for example. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer, both for ourselves and for others. Right. So we're committing to bring one another to the Lord like we are the ambulances of the spiritual ambulances, bringing the sick to the Lord's uh, the Lord healer himself. It says in the next paragraph, we will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. I mean, there's so many examples here about what mutual encouragement looks like according to the command of Jesus Christ. This here is a significant document for the church along with a statement of faith. And what I find so encouraging um, to know is that uh, David Ree, David Ree right there, uh, actually made a church clock. And the face of the clock is actually the church covenant. And from what I understand, David made the clock uh, to be a regular reminder that Christ calls us to, quote, exhort one another daily. Hebrews 3.13. I mean, what a great example. Uh, What a great reminder. The fact that, right, we are all but a breath. Time is running out. And we need to redeem the time knowing that the days are evil, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. And so now every time he looks at that clock, and if you have you visited his, I don't know where this clock is, his house, and you see that clock right there, you know what is on his mind and what he prays would be on his mind all the more, I'm sure. Um, but you too have an example of what ought to be on our minds as life is but a breath and we live for the glory of God here. So let me encourage you to take the covenant and meditate on it. It will help cultivate this desire for mutual encouragement. Pray through it. And where you know you fail to, to accomplish these things all the time, which we all do, right? This, we, we promise to do these things by God's grace. Uh, you know, pray for it. Pray through it, asking God by his grace to help you do these things all the more for his own glory. You know, even as we gather face to face to worship God, there are so many ways that we can actively work for mutual encouragement, aiming to see other people's hearts secure in the gospel. Right? We talked about the church covenant. That's something that we, we can do. Um, together, something you can do also at home, but here to think more about how we do this practically when we gather together. Here's an example. When you sing, you could sing as if it's just you and God. You could do that. Or you could sing 
right? Or you could actively pray when we pray, or you could actively be hearing the word when you hear the word. You could do these things as if it is not only true for you, but also true for them, to the person right next to you. Right, so, so what encourages me is, you know, there's a song that I know that Melanie likes, and when she was going through, uh, she still continues to mourn the loss of her mom. You know, I know that that song in particular would be sung very meaningfully to her. And so as I'm singing that song, I'm praying actively as I sing that this would be so true for her. It was He Will Hold Me Fast, right? Her mom would sing that song uh, in the days before she died. And so now when we pull out that song, we, we associate that song with her mom. And so as Melanie's singing the song, I am praying, as I'm singing the song too in the pew, I'm singing that those words would be so much truer for her that she would know God's faithfulness, God's preservation, His power, His love, His mercy, not only for her, but also for her mom who's gone. So we can do that, right, as you're hearing the word. If you, if you know somebody, some issue that somebody's going through, right, and you hear something pertinent, you can be praying, yes, I pray to you, to you God, that you would make that true in this person's life. Especially where they might need encouragement and even where you know they might need rebuke. So do you do that? Or do you really only have ears to hear for yourself? As if God only intends to speak to you. Let me encourage you to strategize about how you can facilitate mutual encouragement also throughout the week. Just as you, um, just as a church gathers, right, for mutual encouragement, you can, as the church scatters, you can also be encouraged here. So the hope is that we all would be gathering together regularly to continue like a normal Christian conversation where we are encouraging one another in gospel truths, where we are confessing our sin, where we pray for one another, where we see how we are doing in this fallen world as we continue to trust in Jesus Christ. One way to strategize about um, doing this or one way to do this is, uh, is just continue to think about how we can do good to one another spiritually. Now, I know it might seem counterintuitive, you know, to strategize for these things because we're so used to strategizing about ourselves, about our own earthly lives, our careers, our families, our bank accounts. Well, friends, let me encourage you to invest energy in the earthly lives of your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because it affects their eternal souls, right? You can't get a better return on investment than when you spend yourself in gospel encouragement. There are dividends that you cannot see but are guaranteed to last into eternity. Let me encourage you very practically to have people over into your home to talk. Have people into your home to talk. Exercise hospitality. And let me also challenge you to think about how often you can regularly do this, uh, whether it be your home, your apartment, or your room. And remember, right, when you invite people, it does not have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be fancy at all. I remember one time... um, exercising hospitality and this girl she was kind of learning to do that we were in seminary me and melanie and uh we just said hey let's have people over like spur of the moment this is sunday after church we're like yeah let's have people over for dinner after the evening service and then you know we kind of surveyed the stuff in the refrigerator we're like okay we got eggs over here we got chinese food over here and uh, maybe we got a sandwich over here and we even have leftovers like what do we do let's just bring it out and just say hey we're having leftovers and all a bunch of mishmash stuff, and you can come over and eat it if you want to. Um, and uh, people came over, and they were really encouraged. And that gal who was learning to practice hospitality, she went on to say and let Melanie know that, hey, that was really freeing because it showed me that I didn't have to have everything be super fancy. And it also showed me that I didn't have to provide everything, right, because we even just were pulling out old stuff. Uh, or we could just say, hey, let's have a potluck and just have people over. But in terms of facilitating gospel encouragement, um, in terms of having people, I've been super encouraged by Steve and Gwen Watson. Uh, you basically, you guys have basically had everybody over to your house, uh, even though at uh, different periods of time. Super encouraged by how you guys open up your house, not only to have some good smoked barbecue, uh, but more importantly than that, uh, it's to facilitate gospel encouragement. And so it's no surprise that people, when they came away from Stephen, Stephen, Gwen, your guys' houses, that your house, that uh, they were spiritually encouraged. And not only that, though, Gwen probably doesn't want me to talk about this, but um, you know, on top of all this, I get encouraging letters from Gwen, you know, telling me how she's been praying for me and all this other stuff and stuff. So I get super encouraged by their ministry to me, and I know that they are ministered 
uh, by my ministry to them. So there's this aspect of mutual encouragement. And I see that so clearly on their hearts, a desire for mutual encouragement in the gospel that binds us together. And so therefore, we are bound to and delight in these particular things, fulfilling Jesus' commands here. So let me encourage you to do that. Strategize in uh, how we can do spiritual good to one another, desiring gospel encouragement, mutual encouragement. All right, to sum up where we have been here, mature gospel-driven Christians delight in the gospel's advance, desires gospel encouragement, and the third D, which kind of doesn't work, eh, it's okay, dreams of a gospel harvest, dreams of a gospel harvest. Look at verses 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some, some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Did you notice why else Paul wanted to go to the Roman Christians? Verse 13. Here, this is like the main point. So that, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. Right, so he knows that, we know that he wants to go to Spain ultimately. That's what he says later on in the letter. But here he's saying, I definitely want to go to Rome too. He says, I want other Romans to come to know Jesus Christ. And I want you guys to grow in your spiritual discipleship to him, right? That's the fruit of the harvest. It is not only conversions, but it's also their spiritual growth in Jesus, their discipleship. So you have conversion, but then you also have discipleship. And you notice, too, the tool of the harvest. You've got to connect the tool to the harvest. You have to. The tool to the harvest is there in verse first, first 15. Because he dreams of reaping a harvest, he therefore is eager to preach the gospel. That's the tool of the harvest. This is, again, instructive to you guys, to us, and to you who, should be, who are visiting with us. Right, perhaps you think that those Christians, right, the tool that they use is manipulation. Civilized folks' language that they spoke. Uh, so, you know, onomatopoeia, have you guys ever heard of onomatopoeia, right? The formation of a word form, or sorry, the formation of a word from a sound associated with that word. So think of like buzz. Right, you hear a bee buzzing, you're saying, what should we call that noise? Let's just call it buzz. Right, that's onomatopoeia. That's what's going on here. Bar, bar. And if, that's, if something is keeping you from bringing the gospel to your very own neighbors just because they're different or you don't know their culture or you haven't taken the time to reach out to them, right, that, friends, is a wonderful opportunity that you have to cultivate a desire, that same desire that God has himself to bring all peoples of different types of tribes and nations to know him. Other practical things here, uh, I want you guys all to pull out your cell phones. If you have a smartphone, go ahead and pull out your smartphones. Pull out your smartphone. I'm going to ask you to download an app if you guys have data left. Uh, I want you to search for Operation World. Search for Operation World. This is a book. You could buy it as a book, but uh, now I'm going to talk about the app. It's uh, green and blue there, Operation World. Um, there you go. If you can see it, that's what it is. <clears throat> if you click on it, right, it's going to introduce you to all sorts of different people groups from all over the world. So, for example, today what comes up is Iran, right? And it has, like, stuff that you can be praying for. It has little details. You know how Iran contains some of the largest unreached, unengaged peoples in the world. Missions are not free to minister. Should read missionaries, I suppose. Are not free to minister in Iran, but some... Tent-making opportunities exist. Pray for the door to Iran uh, to open in God's perfect timing. You click over there, and then you have statistics, right? So you got the whole population. You even have the percentage of Christians. Uh, you have 0.51, but that's not even evangelicals, those who believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Your percentage of evangelicals is 0.2%. Uh, and then you got uh, other different types of information here to familiarize yourselves with different types of people groups. And you can do this. You can look it up by different people group. You can look it up by country. You can look, at, uh, you can look it up people based on the day. And then every day, I believe, a new people group is going to pop up. All you got to do is just click on it, and then you have something to pray for in the morning. Um, another app that you could turn to, you don't have to right now, but Joshua Project is another one. 
Joshua Project I find to be um, you know slightly more kid friendly. It'll have uh, pictures of the actual peoples and how they dress, right? So that's familiarizing yourself a little bit more. And we used to print out these little cards. You can download. Actually, for the person who wants it, I have a hundred different people groups, right? In kind of like uh, profile form, and you have like their style of dress and different types of. Uh, statistics and things like that i can give that to you what we used to do as a family is at dinner time uh we would pray for one specific people group right before we ate along with you know praying for the meal and things like that so that way even the children are beginning to realize oh like world is bigger than here at our house uh and i have found that a use, very useful tool so i encourage you guys to do that i also got missionary biography so let me encourage you as, as well to, to cultivate this desire for a gospel harvest so you can read about george whitfield uh, who was a missionary to the American Indians, faithful, solid preacher. We got, uh, here's a gal, Ann Judson of Burma, which is Myanmar. It's exactly where we prayed for today. Uh, her and her husband ministered in this country for many years, and he was tortured for the faith, um, and it was just such a faithful missionary. Uh, so this is awesome. You get to hear her perspective, which I find fascinating. Me and Melanie uh, read some of her memoirs. I have not read this particular book. Melanie has. It's called My Heart. In His Hands by Sharon James, My Heart in His Hands. You can buy that. You can read it. Another one here is uh, William Carey. William Carey, a missionary to India. Um, Super encouraging read. Uh, And if you want to, I'll let you borrow this one. I read that uh, when I was in India, which was kind of fun um, to hear about the other folks who had gone there before. Of course, missionaries had had brought the gospel to India many, many centuries before... um, before William Carey, but nevertheless, it's still fun to read uh, these different types of biographies. So those are the things that we mutual encouragement there, whether you have being of one mind with Paul and Christ or us and Christ or Paul and other Christians. This is what a fellowship is, is being of one mind, one purpose, embracing God's goals, his purposes, his plans for us today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, indeed, we rejoice knowing that you are faithful to your promises. Just as you promised to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, so, Lord, we know that you are accomplishing that even right now. Even as we speak, you are gathering your people together from the corners, so to speak, of the world. Lord, we pray that you would use us to do that, as we know that Los Angeles is a fantastic place to come to know other people from different areas of the world. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon us the same mentality that the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had as he gave himself to see hearts secured in truth, in the gospel's truth. In your name we pray. Amen.